Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. You may find it in your pew Bibles on page 610. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with the rain, in the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the women who grind cease working because they are few and those who look through the windows see dimly when the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because all must go to their eternal home, and the mourners will go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the breath returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, all is vanity. Our New Testament lesson comes from 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22. You may find that in your pew Bibles on page 1086. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonia. Crescene has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful with my ministry. I have sent Ty to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You all must, must be aware of him, for he strongly opposes our teaching. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Great Croesus and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus remained in Corinth. 
Trophius I left ill in Miletius. Do your best to come before me. Send greetings to you all, to Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. First, I want to thank my friends Charles and Tom and the session of this church for the, uh, extending the invitation to share this historic pulpit uh, with you this morning. I have long admired this church and your ministry and your service to the community and particularly your service to Charleston Atlantic Presbytery because of your faithfulness and because of members of this congregation who served on committees and commissions, uh, clergy and laity alike who've been so involved in the life of uh, our presbytery and you've generously supported it as well and it has made possible the fact that some smaller churches in our region can keep their doors open because of the generosity of congregations like Mount Pleasant Presbyterian. So I'm pleased to be here uh, and I commend you for what you've done throughout your history and are continuing to do for our Lord. Uh, it's interesting looking out over the con three congregations, the many connections, uh, some of which I did not know uh, went to Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, but some I did. Some of you I've known for many years. I've worked with you. Some of you I've married. Some of the children I've baptized. Um, the, the banker who loaned me the money for our first house was sitting on the front pew this morning, and the hardware guys who helped me to keep up the house were sitting there. Um, a lady I've traveled around the world with as a member of this uh, congregation. Uh, people I've gone on mission trips with are... Uh, visible out there, so it's wonderful to be with so many friends and uh, in such a historic place. Now, if you know me well, uh, and some of you do, you know uh, that I am unashamedly an autumn person. And on Friday, we enter the season of autumn. It's a very special time of the year. So far as I'm concerned, autumn is a season that has no rival. And except for the occasional storm that turns up in the Atlanta and the Atlantic, I can't think of anything that I don't like about the season of autumn. I love the autumn air, the autumn sky, the autumn clouds, the autumn sunrises and sunsets. And without question, some of my fondest memories of a child and a teenager growing up in Mississippi are connected to this special time of the year. The smell of freshly raked leaves burning. Don't get to smell that much anymore in the cities because they outlaw the burning of leaves. Sometimes I just drive out in the country so I can get a whiff of it again. It takes me back, uh, the smell, to my childhood. I don't miss the raking of the leaves, but I do miss the smell. We were up in Banner Elk, North Carolina recently at a little fair, and the lady that made candles was showing her wares. And I said, do you have any candle that smells like burning leaves? And she said, no, but you're not the first person that's asked me about that. And I said, well, when I smell that, I'm back in Mississippi raking leaves. I remember trips to the state fair in Jackson every early October or late September. I remember the taste of taffy freshly pulled. I remember eating hot bowls of chili on Saturday night as my family typically did. I remember sleeping with the windows open, piles of blankets on top of us. Uh, I remember the frost on the pumpkin, smoke in the chimneys. One of the things I remember from my teenage years is hay rides in the country. Uh, churches typically had hay rides, which were wonderful events. If you were a young boy in love, got a date to go with you on the hay ride. Usually it was so cold that she would snuggle up to you a little, and so dark she couldn't see you blush. 
back in the days when people used to blush. But uh, at any rate, my wife and I, our first date was a hayride that my home church was sponsoring, and she came to that with me. I love the fall colors. The hues of orange and red and yellow are spectacular. And one of the things this Mississippi Flatlander learned in moving up east, first to Richmond and then later to uh, the foothills of the Smokies in Kingsport, is just how spectacular Mother Nature can be with all of her autumn finery on. Just really blew me away. Uh, we didn't have many hardwoods in Mississippi. It's mostly pine and that kind of thing as we have here in the low country. So you miss some of the color. And even uh, today we look forward occasionally to driving back to the mountains just to get another fix on Mother Nature and the wonders of God's creation. Now I have to confess it took me a while to get accustomed to autumn in the low country. But I've come to believe that while it's markedly different, Autumn in the low country has a beauty and a significance all of its own, but you have to look for it or you have to listen for it. But I love the change in the grasses, the grasses in the marsh, which driving from Sullivan's just yesterday, I was noticing all the green is quickly becoming gold. I would say in another couple of weeks, it will all be golden. And when wind blows over the marshes, it will resemble nothing so much as a Kansas wheat field. Uh, it's not the hardwoods, it's not the foliage so much in autumn here in the low country, it's more the flowers, the shrubs and the bushes, the window boxes on, in homes seem to be brighter and more spectacular than at any other time of the year. The sweet grass has a cranberry haze that comes over the top of it in the autumn of the year. You've probably noticed monarch butterflies flittering about. They come, we're on their flyway uh, as they head for uh, southern regions. Um, I love the fall fashions. Um, I would be satisfied if I could wear flannel shirts and blue jeans every day of the week. Uh, I like corduroy and jeans and tweed and uh, sweaters. Uh, I love being at the beach. We live at the beach. Uh, but I learned since moving there that while all the tourists come to the beach in the summer, God goes to the beach in the autumn of the year. If you really want to go to the beach and enjoy it, to go before sunrise or after sunset to the beach and just walk, and the canopy of stars will blow your mind. You almost feel like you can reach up and touch the sky, touch the stars, because, I guess, of the low humidity in the air. So I love everything, really, about fall, except for those storms that come, not just occasionally, it seems, this summer. And yet there is another, another part to Autumn's Tale, we may not want to think about it, but it's a reality, and there's a message for each of us in God's season of autumn. Because deep within us, though we might want to dismiss the thought, is a realization that if autumn is here, then that means that winter can't be far behind. Autumn has been described as a parable of all that fades. Just think about that. A parable of all that fades. We know that soon... The oranges and reds and yellows of October will be giving way to the grays and browns and blacks of November. And if we look at God's created order, the tapestry of nature, we see constant signs about us that even as there is a season for birth and growth and fruitful production in the providence of God, so too is there a season for decay and for death. We can see this truth written into nature and we can hear it if our ears are attuned to the sounds of autumn. One of those sounds, there are many sounds of autumn, uh, 
but one of them is beautifully described by Hal Borlan in his Book of Days. It's the sound of migrating geese. Listen to this description. Most birds migrate in silence. Whether you're walking down a city street or standing in a suburban backyard or working in a rural woodlot, you know when the geese fly over. First you hear that distant gabble, a faint clamor that seems to echo from the whole sky. You search the sky and the gabble comes closer. And then you see them flying high, making a V almost like a pencil line of dots. You listen and watch and the flight is so high it almost seems leisurely. If it is a close V formation, it is almost certainly Canada geese. If it is a looser V, rippling and waving, and one line is longer than the other, it is more likely the less common snow geese. But whichever, the flock's gabbling is like the voice of restless autumn, and the flight never wavers. On and on over the hills and the towns and the cities to the far horizon and still beyond and southward, until only that restless echo, faint and haunting remains. They are footloose as the autumn wind, and they follow the sun. There's something both exhilarating and faintly sad in the echo of their going. Maybe it is the echo of another summer gone. Maybe it is the freedom song of the skies, but whichever, it haunts the earthbound heart. It seems in recent years I hear the geese less often than I used to when we first moved here. That could be a sign either that there are fewer geese on the coastal flyway of which we are part, or that my hearing is becoming more and more impaired, which is a sign of autumn as well. There are other sounds of this season. There's the croak of tree frogs after a heavy rainstorm. Have you ever listened? Go by a field that hadn't been mowed in a while and just listen to the frogs after a heavy rain in the autumn of the year. The cry of a marsh hen. The crows, at least crows in our neighborhood that hang out in the hackberry trees, which we hate, and they fight over the berries early in the morning, but they make quite a clatter as we wake up. And so it is that if we carefully listen or closely observe, we may just hear or see Autumn's subtle admonition reminding us that there is a beginning and an end for all things in life, for the year itself, for each of us, and our loved ones, and as I wish to emphasize this morning, for the opportunities of service and growth and discipleship that may be before us right now, that may not come back. The text for today's message is a wonderful one, 2 Timothy 4.21, where the Apostle Paul, now old and tired and exhausted, is writing to young Timothy, whom he loves, his associate who will take up his ministry when Paul is gone, and he invites him to come quickly and, and visit him. And when he comes to bring young Mark with him, John Mark, to bring also a favorite cloak uh, that he left behind in Troas. And to bring, above all, those parchments that he loves to read. That was his, his Bible. And as he draws his letter to a close, he says, come before winter. Why? Why the urgency of this appeal? There are two things we need to know about this, the context of these words as we listen to them. The first is that when Paul is writing them, he is imprisoned in Rome. And he is awaiting imminent word as to either his release or his execution. And frankly, we don't know which word he heard. We're not certain exactly of the circumstances of Paul's death. But he's in prison as he writes, one of the prison epistles. 
And as he writes, he shares that it's a time of trial from him, for him. He didn't have people come to his defense when he was tried. Uh, many of his friends have deserted him. Uh, he sends greetings to other friends who had stood by him. But he says, please, come before winter. And the urgency is due to this. In those days, the season for navigation in the Mediterranean Sea closed in the winter. You didn't go sailing across the sea in the winter. And so young Timothy knew that if he was going to go on this mission of mercy to visit Paul in Rome, he would have to leave immediately or else forget about it until the next spring. And who knows, maybe by the next spring, the apostle and the mentor to Timothy would have been executed. Do your best to come before winter. One of the most powerful and persuasive sermons in the history of the American pulpit was preached on this text by Dr. Clarence E. McCartney. For some 40 years he preached this message, first at the Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and later at the First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where his church was frequented. It seemed to have a special appeal to the many medical students who were studying in, in Pittsburgh. But many lives, countless lives, were changed and influenced by that one sermon, and it occupies a place of pro, uh, prominence in the history of the American pulpit. I had heard about this message from Dr. McCartney, Come Before Winter, and I knew the text on which it was based. But long before I had ever heard the message, and I actually heard it a few years ago, you can still get it, over through the uh, Reigner Recording Library at Union Seminary. But each year, knowing the message and the text, it has nudged my heart whenever autumn comes round because there's a profound message in this text for each of us and all of us. I don't want to be morbid here this morning, but I realize, as you must, that some autumn will be our last. Some autumn will be my last to read this passage or, or preach on it or to heed its warning individually. And some will be your last as well. And it doesn't really matter if you're young or old or healthy or sick or rich or poor. Not a person here today has been promised tomorrow. And so this autumn may be the last for some of us. If it's not the last, it may be the last and best opportunity for us to respond to the call of God in three specific dimensions of our lives. And I would like to mention those now. First of all, I would use this text, Come Before Winter, to encourage all of us to come to our senses about what's important in life and what is not important. Because it seems to me that a majority of people today spend an inordinate amount of their energy and unrealistic amount of their time, a disproportionate part of their resources in pursuits that are narrowly self-serving or selfish or trivial or simply unimportant. When our family gets together, we like to play trivial pursuit, but that's not just a board game. It's, it's an apt description of the lives of far too many people. So many people waste their living, their hours, their resources, their very character in serving themselves because they have fallen into what society tells us through the media, through Wall Street, through uh, advertising, that we have to have this or we have to be that to find fulfillment or happiness in life. They waste their lives. If we'd only heeded the message of Scripture or heeded the testimony of women and men who have gone this way before us, we would have known without question that there's no ultimate 
satisfaction or fulfillment in the selfish accumulation of things, in the relentless pursuit of personal honors, in the maniacal quest for fame, in the quest for power, indiscriminate sexuality, preoccupation with external stimulants, whatever they may be. And it's so tra tragic when people live their entire lives never recognizing what makes for happiness, what makes for fulfillment in life. So before winter comes, come to your senses personally about what is important in life and what is not, and where are your priorities, and what are you going to do about them. The simple truth is that we can change our ways now, but it's not to say that we can change our ways at some point in the future. I know the passage, with God nothing is impossible, but sometimes our morals and our values become so ingrained, our habits so entrenched, our character so warped through years of neglect and abuse that even God Almighty finds it difficult to get through to us. Come before winter. I use this text in a second sense to urge us while we have the opportunity and the inclination to accept those obligations that love places upon us especially with respect to family and friends. The winter will come and go, and the earth next spring will be decked not only with a new crop of flower, flowers, but with the fresh graves of some of our present opportunities. There are deeds of love that I know you've wanted to perform, words of affection and friendship that you have intended to speak, but you've hesitated. And you thought, well, maybe next year life won't be so hectic. I'll get around to that sooner or later. But next year may never arrive. It will not arrive for some of us here today. Are there people you've meant to help, but you haven't? Are there projects of mercy you intended to undertake, but for one reason or another you simply never found the time? Are there apologies you need to offer to people in your life? Are there offers of forgiveness that you need to extend? Are there frayed relationships in family or among friends that need to be resolved right now? Maybe your last chance. Are there marriages that are coming apart today, which if worked on perhaps could be saved, but next year, who knows? Maybe the damage done will have made them irreparable. So for some of us here today, perhaps for many, this autumn is our best, perhaps our last chance to respond to the promptings of love and to say and do those things for people that we admire or love or respect that we've put off doing for too long. So come before winter to those obligations of love in your own family and in your own circumstances. Now, of course, it's important to come to our senses about what's important. It's, impo it's equally essential that we accept those opportunities for loving and faithful service but I would urge us, in the third and final sense, to come before winter to our God. This could be the autumn of our lives as well as the autumn of our faith because no one knows that we'll be here tomorrow. There's so much in religious literature about deathbed conversions. People think, well, I know confessing my sins and giving my heart and life to Jesus Christ is important, but I'll get around to doing that later, and later never arrives. I was ordained in 1972. In all those years of ministry, I have been a part of one deathbed conversion. So the fact is, people die much as they live, with or without God. So each of us has to decide about that. 
But each of us can make a life-altering decision even today while we're sitting here. But the next time God calls, our ears may have grown deaf, or the next time God demonstrates his love, his power, and his grace, our vision may be too dim or distorted to see. And that is why Paul writes and says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. This is the day of salvation. And those words apply as well in 2017 as they did in the first century. I assure you, if these columns could speak or if these old pews could share their secrets, they would tell the stories of hundreds or thousands of people who missed out on the kingdom of God simply because when God called, they said tomorrow. And tomorrow never came. In his little book, And Jesus Said, William Barclay tells of uh, three little apprentice devils that are getting ready to come from hell to do their damage on earth and to afflict God's people. They each have to come up with a strategy. So they're reporting to Satan what they intend to do when they get to earth. The first little devil says, well, I'm going to tell them there's no God. And Satan says, well, that won't work. Most people believe in their heart of hearts there is a God up there somewhere. The second little devil says, well, I'm going to tell them there's no hell. And Satan says, that won't work either. Most people have experienced enough hell on earth that they believe in hell. <laughs> and the third little devil said, well, I'm just going to tell them there's no hurry. And Satan lights up. He said, tell them that and you'll destroy them by the millions. And the old evangelist Dwight L. Moody came back from a religious revival one evening. He had a tent meeting and he went to the home of the family that were acting as his host. And the lady of the house said, well, Dr. Moody, how many conversions did you have tonight? He said, two and a half. And she said, you mean two adults and one child? He said, no, ma'am. I mean two children and one adult. A child can give his whole life to God. An adult only has part of his life left to give. Maybe that's why the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, so remember your creator while you're still young, before those dismal days and years come when you will say, I don't enjoy life. Today... Any of us can come to God. The invitation is always there. It's simply whether or not we will heed it or respond to it. And so in conclusion, before winter arrives, I appeal to you this autumn to come to your senses about what matters in life and what doesn't matter. To come to those obligations that love places upon you with respect to family and friends. And most importantly, if you've not done so yet, to come to your God. The fact of the matter is most of us know what God is calling us to be and to do. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of will and determination. So I challenge you before you leave these doors and this sanctuary today, make a resolution what you're going to do differently about your service to God, about your obligations to family and friends, and about your relationship to Jesus Christ. Clarence McCartney preached that famous sermon, Come Before Winter, for the 40th and last time, 1955, Dick Giffen told me after the previous service that he heard that sermon that year. But this is the words that closed that sermon by Dr. McCartney, and I'll read them to you in closing. Once again, then, I repeat these words of the apostle, come before winter, and as I pronounce them, common sense, experience, conscience, scripture, the Holy Spirit, the souls of just men made perfect, and the Lord Jesus Christ all repeat with me. Come before winter. Come before the haze of Indian summer has faded from the fields. Come before the November wind strip the leaves from the trees and send them whirling over the fields. Come before the snow lies on the uplands and the meadow brook is turned to ice. Come before life is over 
and your probation is ended and you stand before God to give an account of the use you have made of the opportunities which in his grace he has granted you. Come before winter. Come to thy God in time, youth, manhood, old age, past. Come to thy God at last. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if by your grace some word of yours has reached us this morning, if some conviction has been laid upon us with respect to our living, if some new truth has dawned upon our minds or some appeal moved our cold hearts, then give us the grace to respond to the promptings of your Holy Spirit while we have the opportunity and the inclination. For we pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.